Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am so excited. I have a longtime friend, Christian Monopolis. Got it right, didn't I? Very close. Super close. <laughs> it's a hard one. It is a hard Manilopoulos. one. There you go. All right, y'all. Looking to enhance your breeding program? Spring into action with Embark for Breeders Dog DNA Kit. Did you know that Embark tests across 230,000 markers? That's twice as much as its leading competitor, making Embark the most accurate dog DNA test on the market. Embark has customized its probes for results such as 210 plus genetic health risks, 35 traits, and genetic diversity. Each genetic health condition is tested using at least three and up to eight separate probes. This redundancy gives an extremely high genotyping accuracy with over 99.99% accuracy for mutation tests specifically and 99% for most linkage-based tests. Find out why responsible breeders trust Embark to enhance their breeding program. Right now, you can save on the most comprehensive dog DNA kit. Just visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK to receive $20 off a full-priced Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK dog talk just for you oh my god i first met christian in the 90s when he was working for tim brazier in washington state and i was just a tiny baby dog handler and i am so excited for this conversation so christian welcome so excited to have you here Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a long time. I've followed your podcasts over the years and listened to many of them. And now, hey, I made the big league. I'm on here. <laughs> you know, I just like to think of it as my favorite people. That's <laughs> Well, that's very nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know the drill. Give us the 411, how you got started in dogs, how you wound up here in the United States. It's such a great story. So. Tell us about it. Well, I started when I was about 14, 15. My family had always had toy poodles growing up, but we had had apricot and silver toy poodles at that time. And we would go to dog shows. And, you know, the Melbourne Royal Show was a big show in Australia, where it still is the biggest show. Uh, And we would go watch the poodles and watch other dogs. And there were some local dog shows, but I didn't show dogs. Actually, I was very into playing golf at that time and cricket. And I played cricket. I was the opening batsman for my cricket team at school. And then I was state schoolboy champion in golf. I used to play off a seven handicap a long time ago. So I was more interested in sports, but I had injured my knee and 
across the street was a big obedience club and there would be hundreds of dogs there on the weekend. And the vast majority of the dogs were purebred dogs. And I would go over and I would watch the dogs at the obedience classes. And this is in Croydon, Australia. And so I started going. We had the toy poodles, but I was at an age where, you know, I didn't want to have toy poodles. I wanted uh, something else. Manly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got an Irish setter from a very famous breeder in Australia, Keith McCarthy. And I showed him, I got involved with some local people. And, you know, I have to say throughout my life, I've been very fortunate. I found if you ask for help, people are generally very willing to help. And I tried to do that with young people, not just young people, everybody, really. Everybody. Today, but early on, people were very helpful. You know, my family, we were not wealthy. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of ability to go to dog shows. Mm. So people, I would ride along in the car, things like that. And I got a little better at showing them and got involved with some people. And an old breed judge in Australia, her name at the time was Lynn Schelling, Lynn Watson. She had Afghans and greyhounds, and she had married a guy, Peter Watson, who went on to be the president of the Victorian Kennel Association, or like AKC for the state that I right. was in. And I started showing their dogs. I showed Robin Wallace, who has bred some really beautiful PBGBs, mm-hmm. and Gordon Setters. I showed some of her dogs and did some winning with those. And Bev Watt had pointers. So I was mostly involved in sporting dogs and a very good friend of mine that I lived with. When I moved out of home at 18, I lived with this lady, Elaine Hansen. She had Kerry Blues and we co-owned a toy poodle. And I was always more interested in the toy poodle part of it. And so I showed dogs in Australia. I would go to shows. People would pay me in the sense of I got money to go get gas. I got money for food at the dog. Expenses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought it was fantastic. You know, right, I was 18. Right. I had moved out of home. You know, I had a real job. I had a degree in horticulture. I worked in a sheltered workshop with intellectually disabled people, which oh later in life became very beneficial yeah. because not to say it's the same, but most of the people were intellectually disabled. And it was learning how to work with people, what motivated people, how to deal with different people, because different people have different motivations and what they want to do. As a handler, you'll learn that. Yes. But having a real job and then being able to go to dog shows and somewhat get paid, Mm -hmm. I was like, this is what I want to do. And then I tell this story, I've told it many times, I was am an avid reader and I would get Kennel Review magazine. There was a library. The Kennel Club had a library. I would go to the library and I saw Kennel Review. And I remember seeing being mesmerized by the American dogs. And in there, there was an old photo of Frank Sabella with a miniature poodle tranchant of Annabelle. And she won Best in Show at Santa Barbara two years in a row. And I was mesmerized by that picture of Frank. And I was like, one day I want to have a dog like that. I want to do that. And it kind of developed. But Lynn Schelling had sent Lisa Bettis to Joe and Pauline Waterman about five, six years earlier. Right. And so Lisa had left. They had a girl from New Zealand and they wanted someone else. And so Lynn asked me if I would be interested in going to America. And literally three weeks later, I was in America. I went next day, got a passport. <laughs> I didn't know you went to Joe and Pauline first before you came up to Timmy. Yeah, I worked for Joe and Pauline for four years. I lived in Los Angeles okay. working for them okay. originally. 
So as an assistant for nine years, you know, it took a while for me to learn some things, but, uh, <laughs> but there's more involved with that. But I mean, it was one of those things I was asked and I was like, I'm going to America and I'm going to do this. I told my parents. There's and, a song about that, right? Go yeah, yeah. to America. <laughs> right. And, you know, there was no backup plan. You know, I had a job and I was like, I'm going to America. And essentially when I came, the idea was I was going to come for a year, but I never had any intention of going back, to be perfectly honest. I thought if I can be halfway decent at this, this is better than working in a nursery with disabled people. I mean, not that that's a bad job, but this is a better job. This is a job that <laughs> spoke to your heart. Right, exactly. And so I came and I was just fully immersed and I don't want to learn everything. I would read pedigrees. And, you know, going to John Pauline was fantastic because being in Los Angeles, you know, Dick Beauchamp and Frank Sabella would call the kennel. Right. At that time, they were still breeding Bichons a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I would study the pedigrees of all the Bichons and all the dogs. And I knew their pedigrees better than they did. <laughs> you know, so eager to learn at that time. Right. Right. And so that was a tremendous experience. You know, the dog show world in Los Angeles in the early 90s was a world of its own in that sense. You know, Corky mm -hmm. was like the king and then Bruce oh, yeah. and Gretchen and then Joe. And so it was a tremendous learning experience. And I tell people it was different also because we didn't have as many dog shows. Most of the shows were only Saturday and Sunday shows. That's right. And so all of the assistants, Woody's assistants and Bruce and Gretchen's and Corky's, we would often get together on Tuesdays and go and do things. So it was right. a very communal thing. Well, and that whole Southern California, it's kind of faded a little bit, but you're right. That Southern California dog scene at that time was yeah. just, it was definitely the golden era of Southern yeah. California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It I really mean, was. Right. Well, for SoCal, yeah. <laughs> Southern and, California. <laughs> yeah. I would say it's different now mm -hmm. than it was then. Mm -hmm. But I mean, those, you know, Corky was like a legend. And, yes. And those ladies, you know, Pauline, Sue, Gretchen, yeah. and Berger, Cody, actually. Yes. They were very motherly influences on a lot of the kids in the yes. LA area. And Mama Gretch. I mean, even me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was a great lady and, you know, it was sad when she passed away because she was a mother to many kids. And I mean, especially someone like me, I came from another country. My family was thousands of miles away, no ability to see them. I had gone almost 18 years between the time I left Australia and the time I saw my family. So in many ways, these women replaced my parents for me and i um, very appreciative to all of them. Sadly, all of them have passed away now, I know. but I know. it was definitely a different time. So that was a great experience growing mm -hmm. up in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and being 20 and going to Hollywood all the time right. and, and having the time because we didn't have as many dog shows right. to do that. And you guys didn't carry that many dogs either. I mean, it wasn't a 40 dog truck. Right, right. John Pauline at that time were kind of declining. We would go to shows and we'd have 10 dogs in the truck, that kind of thing. And, you know, they still had a Bichon, Minpins, Bedlingtons, Bassets, Huskies, things like that. They had a variety of dogs, but we specialized. And, you know, I tell people learning to trim on Bedlington Terriers was a tremendous 
learning thing. They're extremely difficult to. Uh, they okay. You tell me. I would say, and I've never done a Bedlington, so I'm guessing this, but just watching people do it, that has to be the most difficult breed to trim. It's difficult because of a couple of different things that you don't think about. The coat texture is extremely soft, so it's right. very hard to get a good finish work on them. Getting the lines is very difficult. Mm -hmm. The breeds changed a lot, I would say, as an observer, in the last 30 years. They're much bigger than they were, heavier mm -hmm. boned. Mm -hmm. The coats are much fluffier. They're better texture or more poodle textured than they were. They used to be very silky and soft. Kelly Miller is the one I watched trim. And mm -hmm. it's like the hair's attracted to the scissor. Like it's, yeah. it's just, <laughs> how do you even do that? <laughs> right. It's very difficult. And also they were a little neurotic. So they would tremble. They would drool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you'd get them all done you'd be trimming the, and you know there's little details you know the, the bedlington's front legs are not supposed to be straight they're supposed to you know angle in and then they're supposed to break at the past and all those things you rarely see those things trimmed into dog now we just trim them with straight legs right. but they're not supposed to be trimmed that way and learning all those things on a bedlington is very difficult they're very soft skin they clip a burn or cut yes. very easily they're very difficult dogs and I would trim hundreds of them. <laughs> Joe would finish dogs and people would bring their dogs for grooming. I made extra oh, sure. money grooming dogs. I mean, sure. I, I groomed all the time. And I mean, that's the story of my life for 30 years. I tell people that I started working 15 hours a day and here I am 30 years later, I still work 15 hours a day. Right. Every day, it yeah. hasn't changed. Monday through <laughs> Sunday. People don't, yeah. Yeah. I think that's what, one of the things that I love when I have my handler friends come and talk is to help people see that picture. And we're going to get to some more topics on this, but I really think that that's so important for people to understand. This isn't about, I make a million dollars. This is about, I literally work dark to dark seven days a yeah. week for 30 years. Right. I mean, it's, you're very much an entrepreneur in this business, you're self-employed, so the business is you. Yep. And the most successful people that I know, when you start out, you go out from being an assistant, you go out to become a handler. You're literally saying, for the next 15 years of my life, mm -hmm. I am going to work every waking minute of every mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. I am going to forego going to people's birthday parties and weddings and, and things like funerals that. and baby showers. Yes. Right. I will regret many of those things, yes. but those are the compromises you make to be really successful. Now people can say, well, I want a work-life balance and I want to be, well, that's great. Those people either generally come from wealthy families or they're not that successful generally. So the most successful people time and time again, that is their story. And if you think it's going to be different, then you should probably try something else because it's not. <laughs> you should definitely go get a straight job because it's not like that. Right, right. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage 
does not stop there. Trepanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trepanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trepanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. So you went from Joe and Pauline to Tim up north of Seattle and that would have been like, what, 94, 95? Yeah, it was uh, beginning of 95 that I yeah. went to go work for Tim. That's yeah. when I met you. So that's sort of what right. I figured. Okay. And I worked for Tim for five years. I mm-hmm. left like the latter part of 2000. I've been out here in North Carolina since. And, and, you know, working for Tim, you know, ironically, the first year I worked for John Pauline, and we competed against Tim for top non-sporting dog. Right. And so he was someone that I had idolized. Working for Tim was a dream in a way. But, you know, I had always had the interest in the poodles as a kid and then the trimming and all that kind of stuff. And I would always, even in Southern California, I would always go watch the poodle judging. I was always very involved. I knew all the Brian Cordova, mm-hmm. Ray and Sharon Stevens and Art Montoya. Mm-hmm. You know, all those Southern California poodle people at that time, Barbara Humphreys. And so going to work for Tim was something I had wanted to do. And it was just an incredible experience learning and working with Penny. Penny was a great influence and a great teacher. Tim, he didn't work in the kennel that much, but Tim was a great teacher about the business side of it, about dog shows, about working with clients, all that kind of stuff. I learned more about the business side of it from Mm -hmm. Tim and more about the grooming side from Penny. Right. But, I mean, I tell people I work for Tim. We worked in the kennel till 10.30 or 11 o'clock every night. I mean, I hardly ever had a day off, and we loved it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I wouldn't say I never wanted to leave, but, I mean, I was there for five years. I could have left a long time before, although I am extremely appreciative to Tim He helped me get a green card and, you know, I had been an illegal alien. I was legal when I came and then for a period I was illegal. And that was quite a process. And having no safety net of not having a family, not being legal, you know, all those kinds of things present tremendous challenges. You know, it's a hard enough business for anybody in the sport of dogs that wants to be a handler, but then throw in things like you don't have a social security number, can't go get a loan to buy a car when you don't have a social security number. You know, there's tremendous things like that. So I had to work towards that. And Tim, you know, I'll be forever indebted to Tim for his help with that. I tell people the story, you know, there was a time when I was like, okay, I need to get legal. We came home from the last shows at Shoreline Long Beach and I called an immigration attorney and he said to me, well, you have literally 10 days to file all your paperwork because the law changes on January 1st. And he said, I can't do it, but there is a guy who could do it. So he said, he's really expensive. And I called him and got an appointment the next day. And I walked into his office and we went over everything. And he said, I'll take your case. And I wrote him a check for $5,000 that day. And I had $5,033 in my bank account. (laughs) Oh, wow. It's a little unnerving to have $33 to your name. (laughs) I can tell you, Christian, not for the same reason, but I've been there. So I feel (laughs) you. Yeah. So writing that check was difficult, but I knew it was something I needed to do. 
And as I said, it worked out and I'm extremely appreciative of that. But it is difficult when you're illegal to even think about a career. And there are so many people involved as handlers and that kind of thing and dogs that started out that way. And people don't necessarily appreciate the extra struggles we have. You know, I don't have family to help me or I didn't have family. I mean, you know, Rachel and I got together. And so Rachel was my family, but, you know, I didn't have parents to help. I didn't have relatives, that kind of thing. And it was very difficult, but, you know, we persevere. Yes, we do. (laughs) Yeah. So you went from the heyday of Southern California to the heyday of poodledom. That was the Blue Skies Outrageous time. That was... Right, right. Tim was definitely riding high. Yeah. And I think one of the things that people don't appreciate is the business side of the business. That there are too many dog handlers who die, I mean, like broke, because they don't pay attention to the business piece of it. So I would love to hear some of the things, some of your takeaways, some of what you were able to apply that helped make you a better business person in your business. Well, for sure. And I was able to learn some of those lessons from those ladies in Southern California. I mean, Pauline was very business orientated and she taught me valuable lessons. There was the whole thing with Jill Cohen when she had had that big kennel with all the dogs with Eddie and Leslie and she turned around and took the dogs to John Pauline. And it was, it's a great lesson because you need to be respectful to everybody at the dog shows because your competition today could be your client next week. That's right. And Pauline and Sue would teach you some clients are worth having and some clients are not worth having. And just because you've got a checkbook doesn't make you a good client. There's a lot of other things involved. Saving money, you have to run it as a business. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, a lot of kids, they think, oh, I want to get a big winning dog. And then they travel around the country. And a big truck. That's it. (laughs) Right. A big truck, a big mortgage for that truck and make no money and Mm -hmm. they do some winning and then it's all over and they owe a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've made some mistakes over the years as well. The most common, so many dog handlers run into tax issues. Mm -hmm. You know, you're self-employed, you don't save enough money for taxes and things like that. Probably lesson number one, I tell everybody, get a great accountant. (laughs) (laughs) And not a super creative one, because that's what got me when I got audited. Right, right, right. Was the accountant was just a little too creative and took all of my losses off against my ex-husband's tax income. And he made a lot of money. And all of a sudden the IRS is like, why did we write you a check for $9,000 again? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those are the things that, you know, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. That Uh, could be, (laughs) I think, Right there, brackets, just because you can doesn't mean you should, addresses so many things in our sport. Yeah, well, yes, in many, Ah, many aspects. (laughs) Right, and so that part of it, but you know, I hear criticism from people all the time. I have probably some of the wealthiest clients in the poodle world as my clients. And it's difficult to juggle having those people over the years. I mean, Zuleika that I showed for was extremely wealthy and balancing that with other clients was difficult. Doing her breeding program, her dogs, and still making other clients happy is difficult. With Missy, Ilaria, Karen, you know, Nancy, Barry that I show for now. And I've had many others that were wealthy people, but some of them are not as appealing to show for. And I have to say all of the people I show for, I like. I really enjoy working with all of them. So that makes it, 
the money's never enough. As big as the checks might be, and uh, <laughs> maybe they would disagree, the money's <laughs> never enough <laughs> for the amount of time. For the amount of time and effort. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I think that is the hard thing to wrap your head around. And one thing that I always struggled with, my problem was as a business person, if you will, was that I'm like, I'm asking these people to write me a check that's bigger than their mortgage to run yeah. around the ring with their dog. Like I struggled with the moral piece of it. You know? Oh, 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 absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've had some clients pay some huge bills, but I mean, I've had a lot of dogs for those people. That's mm-hmm. their breeding program. But then in the broad scope of it, it's not a lot of money to them. It's a lot of money to us. It's not a lot of money to them. Correct. But you have to run it as a business Mm -hmm. and you have to prioritize people. People have to know what the rules are. You have to be diligent in itemized billing. Those parts of, unless people inherit money, they don't get wealthy by being stupid. They're generally very smart people. That's right. (laughs) And generally... I have to submit all my billing to accountants that work for them. Exactly. Not <laughs> so to them. So my billing has to pass the muster, but you know, that kind of yeah. thing. I mean, I get so many 1099s from my clients. Right, right. right. <laughs> but running it as a business is very important. And that's the thing, you know, people like Sue and Tim mm-hmm. taught me is also, it's a business, it's a marketing job. You have to sell your brand. And people have to enjoy it. You know, on top of all of that, people show dogs because they like it, they have fun and they enjoy it. So complaining to your clients and yelling at them doesn't generally work very well for a long-term relationship. And so that's why I say I tend to only want to show for people I actually like. I really like Karen. I like working with her. I really like Missy. I like working with her. I really like Barry. I really like working with them. And people have perceptions about different clients or different breeds of people, but it is a business. And we all, at the end of the day, I provide jobs, not just for myself and Rachel, but I have employees. I'm an S corporation. You know, I have to file taxes. I have to have insurance. You know, I have to pay employee payrolls, all that kind of stuff. It is a business. If this is what you want to do, you have to pay attention to all of those things. And I've been guilty of not doing that at times, but fortunately, Maripi and Jennifer told me when I first got say, get a good accountant. <laughs> have somebody do your taxes that knows what yeah. they're doing. Don't try and do it yourself. Trust me, this yeah. is not a yeah. DIY kind of concept. Yeah, so- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely, I tried that for a while and yeah, no. don't do it. <laughs> no. no. All right, Cruz, thank you all for joining us. This has been part one of our episode watch this space part two will be coming up soon like the npr of dogdom pure dog talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your attack box to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future So check it. June 1st is our patrons retreat workshop in the Chicago suburbs up northwest of Chicago in the Lake Villa area. The workshops are open to everyone and you can check out the handler clinic in order to sort of polish your performance in the ring. Get a little finesse. 
You can also check out the fine print session with dog savvy lawyer Jen Amundsen about sort of nailing down your contract language and getting that right. Heads up, there might be a couple rooms left at the retreat if you want to hang with basically the coolest crew in dogs for a couple nights. Visit www.puredogtalk.com for details. Don't forget, while you're there zooming around on the website, go take a look at the Pure Dog Talk swag link. You know, you can share the love with all that cool gear. Check it all out. www.puredogtalk.com because your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.